You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. We, we are in part 21 of our series, and I do not want to have to teach it over again. If we don't get it tonight, I don't want to belabor that. Amen. But glad to have you in the house of the Lord. Didn't we have a wonderful day Sunday here in the house of the Lord? Amen. It was just awesome. 200 people here or so. And I think half of the church has gotten sick with the weather, the sinuses, whatever else is going on. And uh, so we are praying for all of those. And uh, I am one that's been under the weather with these allergies here this year. I rebuke it in Jesus' name. And uh, so I didn't get out of the house for three days, but I got to get out and go to the dentist today. That was the first trip out of the house. So nothing like just jumping all in, right? So I've already been to the dentist. Man, I'm numbed up. I'm ready to go here tonight. So I hope you have your Bibles. And let's go to Genesis chapter number nine. We are going to come to some of the most. Brother Lawless, it's good to see you tonight. Amen. Glad to hear good reports. Amen. Even if you can't see me yet. That's all right. We're glad you're here tonight. Um, We are going to cover some of the most uh, controversial uh, passages of Scripture tonight. Everybody say praise the Lord. Lord. Amen. So we're going to get into Genesis chapter number nine. I'll try not to hold you too awful long tonight. And uh, I was trying to make sure that we were live online because my wife was wanting to watch because she'll let me know if I go too long. So that's why I was stalling. But we want the help of the Holy Ghost here tonight because we didn't just come to uh, just talk to you or talk at you, but we really came to just look at God's Word and ask God to have His way. So I wonder where you're at right now. Can you just lift your hands toward heaven? And let's ask God to have His way, Lord, in Jesus' name tonight. We thank You for Your precious gift of Your presence, Your Spirit, and Your Word. And tonight, God, as we come into this place, God, I pray that our minds and our hearts would be open, that your word would speak to us and in our life, God, tonight, and that you would encourage someone in the name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, name, amen. Now, we're only covering nine verses of Scripture tonight, Lord willing, but there's so much in these nine verses that are packed in here. There is so much here that we could talk about, and and books have been written, and there's a lot of material that's out there, but I want to get through some of the gist of things if I can. And so let's go to Genesis chapter number 9. Now, if you haven't caught on yet, we are in a series called Origins, a study of beginnings, and we're looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And the reason why we're taking our time to go through here is because so many things are established in this passage of Scripture. So much is informed in this passage of Scripture. This is the roots of things that inform us. Why we believe what we believe. Just off the top of my head, and I hope to uh, consolidate a summary list that when we're at the conclusion of this series, I'm going to go through a list of everything that we, we covered. But things like, we ought to fear God more than science or more than creation. That was the first thing, that God is absolute, that we're made in His image. And in His image, we are made above all other creation. And with that comes 
a, a mandate. God made us male and female. He, he, he required uh, uh, distinction there. He requires modesty and dress. We see that. We see that all man is fallen. We see all the way through the requirements that God has, modesty, other issues, uh, interpersonal relation issues in civilization. Then he wipes out the world because of sin, saving eight people, Noah and his family, Noah, his three sons, and all their wives. He saves them and he brings them out. And now we're looking at this new earth where God's established some things. And in that, the bedrock of the new earth civilization is that there shall be no murder. And if there is murder, there's capital punishment. There's a punishment God says, I will require at your hand. These are things that God is instituting here. It's a big stuff, big things that he's sort of establishing. Now we're coming through and we're going to see, uh, uh, we're going to see sin come back up now here tonight. We're going to see some things and then we're going to go on and we'll see how the world sort of spreads and it sets everything up and then it translates from a universal history into a, into a, a national history, that being the seed of Abraham. When we get out of Genesis chapter 11, that's an interesting thing. There's 10 generations from Adam to Noah and uh, Noah's father has three sons by which the narrative goes. And then there's 10 generations from Noah to uh, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Terah is given three sons. So some interesting parallels that are Then we come to the Tower of Babel, and all of those things, uh, the, the, found, the confounding of man and languages. And so, so much is given to us in this passage that informs us. And so tonight we come to some of the most contested passages of Scripture because it regards the sin, specifically, that uh, Ham commits upon Noah, and there's been mass disagreement over this. And then Noah sings, uh, uh, gives a response that seems to be unconventional. And <clears throat> it doesn't make sense. And in some ways, it frankly seems downright outfa- uh, unfair uh, a little bit. So I'm going to give my best, if I can, to bring some things to you. Now, what we are doing when we're jumping into this passage of Scripture the phrase that we've always said is so important and critical to remember. And that is this, that the Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know, but it tells us everything we need to know. So there are details that are left out, which I wish were there. There are things that I wish were there that I could then say, hey, this, oh, let me explain that to you. It's real easy. You could just go right here. But there's times where that detail is not put in there. And if it's not put in there, then we must understand that getting the gist of what God was trying to relay to us, it did not matter whether the detail was in there. We could understand <coughs> We could understand something. And I, I left the water in there, but I need you to read, so I need someone else to find a water. <coughs> Thank you. Excuse me. Amen. Everybody say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Amen. So tonight, we're going to look at, we just came out of the flood. This was a massive thing. We talked about the implications of the flood. We talked about how this was the largest storm that the history of the earth has ever seen, the largest earthquakes, the greatest earthquakes, the greatest volcanoes, the greatest effect. We really cannot comprehend exactly what was entailed in the flood. We talked about that all uh, two weeks ago. And uh, you can go back and you can catch that in part 20. Uh, it was an excellent uh, 
uh, passage of Scripture, when you're looking at that, really lets you understand, does God, <laughs> does sin matter to God? Yes, it matters to God. Yes. Thank you so much. Give Brother Zarita a great big hand. Thank you, Brother Zarita. <clears throat> so sin matters to God emphatically, and now they come out, and they're going to begin this new earth. We talked about that. We talked about the sacrifice and everything else. And here we are now, some new details. So let's begin at verse number 20, if you can read. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. All right, so there's two things here. One, he began. Everybody say began. Began. Began to be a husbandman. Now he had learned some things before he was on the ark. And so now when he comes back in the new earth, we see the, the beginning of the new earth, we see a contrast from the first. The first is given to us, God sets a garden in there and everything is provided. Of course, he drives them out of the garden. When they go out of the garden now, by the sweat of their brow, they're going to have to work the ground. But now in this new earth, God does not provide a garden. God does not say, okay, Noah, you get a garden. No, Noah goes out and he begins, the Bible says he begins to be a husbandman, uh, uh, a, a farmer, for lack of a better word. He begins to plant, he begins to sow. And Specifically, in this episode, it says, and he planted a vineyard. Now, we don't know how all of the earth economic uh, uh, or um, e ecosystem, if you will, how the ecosystem of the new earth would develop. It would take years, perhaps hundreds of years. Uh, our fax ad was born two years after the flood, and his lifetime spans, I think, somewhere around 500 and some years. And that probably was the recovery years of the earth. And so there's massive, massive things that are happening here in this phase, massive things that are taking place. Perhaps this is when the ice age comes. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of things. Who knows? <coughs> in all the things that happen here. But Noah now has to plant to eat. So where do those seeds come from? We're not given to know that. We're not given to know. We do know that some things have already automatically happened because the Bible tells us that when the dove is let out of the ark, the dove is able to bring back a branch of the olive tree. So there are some things that are there, but now there's some intentional things. So read on. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Okay. So Noah begins planting. He's setting up society for his family, setting up provision for his family. We're left to speculate on that. And by the way, the Bible does leave us at times to speculate on the details. But in doing so, we should always remain cautious and remember that we are not an absolute in our speculations. We are not absolute in our speculation. So that's a very important thing. Now, the next verse, Noah gets drunk. Now, we don't know exactly how the new ecosystem changed. The process of fermentation takes place with aging. Before the flood, they live a whole long time. After the flood, their lifespan is drastically reduced, and we see it in the next 10 decades or 10 generations, if you will. It is reduced, and then it's reduced by half, until by the time you get to the end, it's close to the lifespan of what we would say modern man, somewhere around there in the developed world, I guess you could say in that sense. But Noah gets drunk. 
And there seems to be, now, did he accidentally get drunk? We don't know. But it's probably not a stretch to say that no one knew what he was doing when he planted a vineyard and when he harvests the grapes. Has anybody ever put apple juice in the back of your refrigerator and forgot about it for a few months? And then you pull that out and you pour something out and then all of a sudden you say, this doesn't taste right. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <coughs> Anything. Y'all looking at me like, Y'all looking at me like that's never happened. God bless you. You clean out your refrigerator every week. You keep an inventory and it never, nothing ever goes old in there. But sometimes you know something's different. So perhaps Noah would have known something was different. He would have known what would have happened. But maybe he drank too much. And, and we see something paired with this drunkenness. And this is interesting that paired with the first mention of drunkenness in Scripture is the companion issue of nakedness, which God has already spoken against. Now, it does say that he was uncovered within his tent. So, he is not making a public scene here. It is a private thing that he's within his tent. He's uncovered within his tent. But nonetheless, the parallel is made there between drunkenness and nakedness. And this is something that we would see throughout the rest of Scripture. And so here, Noah gets drunk, and <coughs> the moral of this right here, first thing here, the man who is righteous, who withstands sin, who withstands giving in, preaching for 100 years to the mocking crowd, he now comes through the flood to survive only to get drunk. Now, I don't know, but if I was Noah, I don't know that I would get drunk after but there was a hundred years where I'm pretty sure <laughs> if there was a time to do it. <clears throat> so if you come to the text with that understanding, it's informing us something here. That here a righteous man makes a bad mistake. Good people make bad mistakes. And it's important that we remember that when dealing with others, and it's very important that we remember that when dealing with ourselves, which is why we need a Savior. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, when it seems like now everything's taken care of, goes and gets drunk. <coughs> read on. Let's read on. And him, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Okay, so here is the big issue. Ham, 
the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Now, if you've never read this before, let's read the next two verses, just because I don't believe that you can read verse 22 without... Uh, well, let's, let's read all the way down to verse 27, because we can't just separate this. We have to read this in context. So read on, if you will. And Shem and Japheth took yes. a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So there is a curse that follows from, from Noah. So we understand the severity and the significance of the sin by Noah's response. And so we go back now. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Not only does Ham come in to the tent and see the nakedness of his father, but then whatever takes place in that moment, he now runs to his brothers to pass on the humiliating scene, expecting that they are going to be as pleased by hearing about the failure of their father as he is. Now, the controversy stems, the first controversy is, and I'll, and I'll, I'll try to remember, I think there's three main controversies of this text passage. The first controversy is what happens when Ham sees his father's nakedness. In the book of Leviticus later on, we're told that to see someone's nakedness, to look upon their nakedness, can also be a euphemism for implying an actual sexual act. To uncover someone's nakedness could mean that you uh, uh, in, engaged in immoral acts with either them or, uh, in the case of a man, with his daughter or with his spouse. You violated something there that should not have been violated. <clears throat> and so some have taken from this and said that perhaps what Ham did here involved some kind of sexual act. Now we do know that the Bible is very clear and very plain, explicit in its condemnation of 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 any kind of sexual act outside of the parameters of marriage, God ordained, God instituted, one man, one woman. That is the parameters. Anything outside of that, Scripture condemns. And beyond that, there is uh, even a greater condemnation that comes upon... Uh, sexual acts that it would involve any kind of other beings, beasts, and, and any kind of uh, men with men and women with women. It's absolute. So we do not have to twist this text to justify 
uh, the Bible's stance against something. But here it says he saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his brethren without to see there. That, that verbiage there, some would argue, says, well, it meant he did something. However, in the next verse when we read, we know that it was specifically regarding their eyes because it says that they took a, 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 co a cover, a blanket, basically put it on their shoulder. They walked backwards in so that they did not see. And then it says they covered their father while turning their heads. So they are intentionally, the text is telling us that they are intentionally averting their eyes. So what we do know is that Ham comes in and he looks at his father. And whatever he sees in that moment, there is pleasure, whether that was of a sexual nature or whether he was just so eaten up and now he's so satisfied to see his father in this, this righteous preacher in this drunken state uncovered and the humiliation of his father and he runs out with complete disrespect, jubilant at the failure of his father. and That becomes his vice. And now he wants to invite his brothers <coughs> excuse me, into the same, into the same kind of company, mockery. Aha, look at dad there. And with this one act, he is throwing away all disregard. For, for his father. Now, his father is not just his father. His father is not just dad. His father is the preacher of righteousness that God used to spare humanity while he wiped the rest of the earth clean. This is significant. His father is not just his father. His father is the prophet of God. His father is the man of God. And now Ham is jubilant because he's seeing the failure of his father. This is not just a little case of, 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 of child rebellion against the parent. This is a complete, total usurping, if you will, of spiritual authority. Of who does he think he is? What right does he have to tell me anything in my life because, aha, I have seen his failure. And the first thing that comes to his mind is I've got to expose him to the rest of my brethren. But the brother's response was not one of participation, but whether one, they come in knowing this is wrong, knowing this should not have happened, but yet they cover their father with a blanket. Their posture is totally different. What dad has done in this moment does not undo everything that he's preached and said about God. What dad has done in this moment does not undo who God is and how God feels about us and who we are. So therefore, we must still act right. Even when the preacher is wrong. I have seen so many people and so many churches see pastoral failure 
and use that as a means to justify their place and their position. And I'm going to tell you, be cautious. Paul said, though I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. A failure of a man does not justify your wrongdoing. And so Japheth and Shem take the blanket and they go back and say, we're going to cover him up. And we're going to avert our eyes. We know what's happening, but we refuse to look upon it. We refuse to make this the thing that becomes the topic of conversation. We refuse to let this be the thing. And I'm going to tell you, if you will take on that spirit, it will spare you. It will save you. It will keep you. Amen. If you get a spirit that wants to run around showing everybody's wrongs and failures, pretty soon you will be left with no one that can qualify as spiritual authority in your life. And I don't know about you, but we all need a prophet in our life. We all need someone that God can wake up in the middle of the night and say, thus saith the Lord. We need that in our lives. I had that conversation today. I met, met a fellow minister over over uh, lunch today, and I told them, I told them the same thing. You've got to have a prophet in your life. And I may be able to help you and advise you, and, but I am not your prophet in your life. I am not your pastor in your life. You've got to have that in your life. You need someone to speak. And this is what Sham and this is what Japheth do, does in this moment. So <coughs> was there more that took place? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know, but it tells us everything we need to know. So be cautious in your speculation is what I would say. Be cautious in your speculation. I don't know that it's required for this passage to imply the severity of the situation and the circumstance. Was this one of, of sexual sin? Was this one of lust? I don't know. But whatever it was, he ran out to the humiliation of the prophet, of the, of the preacher of righteousness, and tried to pass this on to his brothers who refused. And so now <coughs> we come to the second most controversial part of this passage. And that is, let's go on, verse 24. Read verse 24. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Okay, there's a couple things here. First of all, he awoke from his wine, which lets us know that he's coming out of his drunken state. I, I've never been inebriated before to know the processes of that, but, but we can just assume by what the text is telling us that he was drunk, drunk. He was really drunk. And there was a point that he had to come out of this. And when he comes out of this, something happens. Now, I've heard it said that when you're extremely drunk, you will not have a remember. You will not understand what's going on. But for whatever reason, we don't know. We're not told here. When he comes out of it, he knows what happens. He, he knows what happens, whether it's why am I covered up? Why, why? Somehow in the process, he knows what took place. Could it have been his two sons when he asked, why am I covered? Did you come in here? And they asked, we're not given to know that. All we know is the Bible tells us he knew what his younger son had done unto him. My guess is that this rebellion was not something that happened in a moment and overnight. 
but probably as a father who had spent a long time on a boat with three sons, he probably knew which one this was, what happened, what took place. Maybe there was more that was involved. We don't know. Maybe he was drinking with Ham at the time. Who knows how that takes place. The Bible story does not tell us this, but he wakes and he knows what his, and the text here says younger son. Now, a lot of translation will use the term youngest son, which is an interesting thing because in the retelling of the story, it seems that he is demoted to the youngest, even though all other places it's given that his sons are Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham is listed as the middle. Now, some places it seems to imply that he's the youngest. We're never told actually the order of their birth, but we're just given them in order, and then later on it, it, will, it will recant them backwards. Now he says his younger son had done something unto him. And here he speaks, read, if you will, in verse 25. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Okay, so <clears throat> if you had some, some uh, uh, newer translations will, will have a poetic rendering and it'll separate this in two. So if you have the NKJV, the NLT, the NASB, uh, another translation... It, it, as the KJV just has it all lined here, it would separate it. And there's two things he does. The first one is verse 25, and it's sort of set in a paragraph form. Curse be Cain, and a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And then in 26, it starts a blessing, a two-verse blessing. And, it's, and, and, and read the blessing here. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Okay, so the next part I'm going to tell you here, this is the contest, the contested part, because why does he then all of a sudden bring in his grandson into the story? Ham is the one that commits the sin, and yet Noah curses his grandson, Canaan. Canaan is the youngest of four sons that Ham has. Ham has... Uh, Cush, uh, Mezraim, Mezraim, if I'm saying that right, and uh, Phut, P-H-U-T, and then Canaan. So he has, four, he has four sons. Canaan is the youngest and he's the last. And now Noah brings in Canaan. He does not bring in Cush. He doesn't bring the oldest son. He takes the youngest grandson. And he curses him. Why does he curse his grandson. Now, of course, the story's retold, and the people that are hearing the telling of this story are the very people that are going to go into the promised land, which is the land of Canaan, and are going to displace them as an agent of God's judgment because of their immorality, their idolatry, which in includes rather gross immorality. And so it has relevance, we know, to the telling. But why does he curse his grandson and not his son? And <coughs> I studied and I looked at it, and I've looked at all my study books, and I looked through all the things, and I read through all the commentaries that I have. And no one has a great answer. The best answer that I heard was, well, it was relevant to the people. They were going in. 
And some people who don't believe the Bible is true say, aha, this was the retelling of the story and this was justification for Israel to feel better about going into Canaan and displacing them. But we know that none of that can be true. So there had to be another explanation. What is going on? Well, if you look at this, there's two things that happen. One thing to take note of, if you go back, in verse 22, I want you to look at this. There's two things to take note of. Verse 22, he says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, note that when you're telling a story in the biblical account, most of the time it would read, if we're following along, it would read, And Ham, the son of Noah, it reads the son of, but here it doesn't read the son of, it reads the father of. Secondly, I want you to note this, that when he pronounces the curse, it's upon Canaan, but when he pronounces the blessing, the blessing is not upon his other grandsons, but it's upon whom? His sons. His blessing goes to his sons. His blessing is upon Shem, and his blessing is upon Japheth, and when he curses Canaan, It's in reference to his brothers, who are actually his uncles, but we also know that sometimes in the Hebrew text that that does imply his brothers. And so what's going on here? (coughs) Well, there's something that we find out later on throughout Scripture, and I would like to make this argument. You probably not find this in a study Bible. I would like to make this argument that what Noah is actually doing here is he is actually cursing Ham. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. He's not cursing Ham because he's cursing Canaan. Yes! But in Near East cultures, in Eastern cultures, and especially in ancient Eastern cultures, still happens today, the father is responsible for the child. The father bears responsibility for the child, period. And so whatever happens, whatever actions the father does, this actually plays out in the law, that until a child is an adult, every action that the child takes, the father bears responsibility for. So the father doesn't get to say for his child, his son that's not an adult, that kills your sheep, The father doesn't get to say, I didn't do that. He was just a child. Kids will be kids. That was not the case. The father was held responsible as if he had done that, and he had to make restitution. There had to be a restitution made for that. So the father father bears responsibility for the son, and the son's actions reflect on the father. If Noah would have cursed Ham... Noah would have had to bear certain responsibility and the curse upon Ham would have reflected back to him. And so Noah, instead of cursing Ham, curses his son, who is born, but his youngest son. And he says, curse be Canaan. And note that in the story, he is always referred to as Ham, the father of of Canaan. And so Noah is cursing the grandson, knowing 
that Ham is the one that is going to have to bear the responsibility. That Ham is the one that is going to have to take the blame. That when, no, when Canaan has a curse on him as the youngest son, Ham is the one that everybody is going to know is responsible for this. Noah is not saying that he did not make a mistake. He did make a mistake. The story tells us he planted a vineyard and he got drunk. But that mistake did not merit the next mistake that was going to take place and that was going to play out. And so he curses the grandson to let everyone know that there is a sin that took place here that Ham committed that cannot be tolerated, that will not be tolerated. And he says this, Shem, you're going to be blessed. And Japheth, you are going to be blessed. And he says, dwell in the tents of Shem. That means that Japheth, you also will have a blessing, but your blessing is going to, it's going to reside under the blessing of Shem. Shem has the primary blessing, but Japheth, you also will be blessed. But Ham, Ham will be a servant of servants. He will be conquered because of his attitude, because of his spirit. There will not be a blessing upon his life. He is going to be a conquered one. And we would see that play out in the longevity. Now, here's one thing that we do not believe. God makes plain, clearly, even in the Pentateuch, before we get out of the Pentateuch, that the children do not bear the sins of their parents unless they reject God. If they are an unbeliever, he uses this phrase, and God says, <coughs> I will visit the sins upon the children and upon their children to the third and the fourth generation. He says that twice in the Pentateuch. In the first time that he says that, he says it in the context, and I won't take you there tonight, but he says that in the context, it's, it's in Exodus, and he says it in the context of an unbeliever, someone that is not in covenant with God. If you are not in covenant with God, God tells the children of Israel, those that are not in covenant with God, the sins that the parents commit, there's nothing stopping those sins to trickle down to the next generation. And I will visit them. But when he says it again the second time in Exodus, I believe it's 34, he says, I will visit the sins from the father to the children and to their children at, to the third and the fourth generation. He is speaking in the context of mercy. And what God is saying is, I will not hold the children accountable for the actions that their father, that their parents did. And I will visit their parents with mercy. I will visit their children with mercy. And I will visit the grandchildren with mercy. I will keep on passing. passing. If you are in covenant with God, what God is saying, and a lot of times you say, aha, and we come up with this generational curses kind of thing. Well, you're just fighting the same generational curses. God said, if you are in covenant, there is no generational curse because I'll show up with mercy and grace at every generation. His mercy is going to be new every morning. But he did tell them, if you are not in covenant, there is nothing stopping the sins of your parents to trickle down to you. But one thing that never is allowed is that while the father in the law has to bear responsibility for the children, the children never bear responsibility 
for the parents. If the parents sin, the child is not found guilty. The child does not bear the responsibility, but the father is the one that bears the responsibility. So knowing that, knowing all of that, and looking at the fact that it says in Ham, the father of Canaan, and looking that he's, 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 he's contrasting this between his other two sons, I make the case that in fact, Noah was cursing him without bringing any reflection upon himself. He was making a distinction here. Canaan had an opportunity to get outside of what was happening. All he had to do was not fall in the same rebellion that his father fell into. We know that from Scripture. Now, I've called a good, uh, uh, our friend, our good uh, <coughs> friend who's in rabbinical school to corroborate, I guess you would say, or to validate this kind of thing. And I even called him tonight before service. I said, I wanted to make sure that I'm not wrong on this. And he helped me through some of that stuff to help see. And he would say, yes, he did not believe that Noah was cursing Canaan, but Noah was cursing Ham. Because what happens to the children, or what the children do, is a reflection of who the father is. Does everybody understand that? Does that make sense? Okay, so those are three main contested things. Now, it's going to get real good, and I've got a few more minutes, but I'm going to try to stop early. The first contested thing is what actually happened when Ham saw his father in nakedness. The second contested thing is why did Noah curse Canaan, and who was Noah really cursing there? That's the next contest. And then the third thing that I would like to say this, and this is absolutely wrong, that it has been for... Uh, a few hundred years, this is the passage of Scripture that so-called, quote-unquote, Christians of antiquity and of recent um, uh, centuries have used to justify slavery. And they use this text to justify slavery. And this just makes me cringe to my gut. I feel icky. That, 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 I just feel gross all over when I think about this. And people have justified slavery because they say, well, uh, specifically, and when I speak of slavery, uh, there's many types of forms of slavery, so I do acknowledge that throughout the history of the world. But specifically justifying the slavery of Africans because of this passage of Scripture. And it's, it's a gross twisting of Scripture where they'll say, well, Ham's descendants were Africans, and so therefore... They have a curse, and it says you're going to be the servant of servants for <coughs> forever, and, and you're going to be a conquered people, and all of this kind of thing. And the thing I would like to highlight, first of all, we're never, we're never told that Ham is black. First of all, we're never told that. So don't assume that you have all the answers and you have everything figured out. The second thing is that Noah did not curse Cush, uh, Mezraim, which is also... Uh, they, we know that they were the people that became the Egyptians. He does not, uh, uh, or, or, or fought. He, he does not curse those three. He only curses Canaan. And so there is a distinction here that has made place. And people have taken and they have used this text to misrepresent what is taking place in Scripture. And it's a gross misuse of Scripture because... God, curse, 
curses, I've already, I've already talked about it. God does not believe that, first of all, curses are passed down. Every person stands before God individually. And so it's a very, very sad and tragic thing that has been taught. And I have, even in my young life, I'm very young, folks. I'm very, very young. <laughs> even in my young life, in encounters and travels around America, I have encountered remote corners of Pentecost that have had this type of teaching that comes in. And it's a gross misuse of Scripture to justify slavery. And if you want to know how I believe, I am indebted. I owe my spiritual heritage to a son of two North Carolina slaves that moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, who, who got the revelation who went to Azusa Street, received the Holy Ghost, evidence speaking in other tongues, and received the revelation of the oneness of God, Jesus' name baptism, and thank God that he had the courage to preach to white people. And he did. In the 19-teens, in the 1920s, he raised up a church in Indianapolis, Indiana. He went to the north side of town at that time. It's not the north side, it's just north of downtown now. The city's grown so much, but at that time he went north of Fall Creek where no black people were allowed to go. And he went and he bought a junkyard and he built a church still standing today on, on those grounds. And he preached to people. 60% of his church was black and 40% of his church was white in the 1920s. We're thinking about that. Oneness apostolics. And out of his church... He felt a call. Hey, he realized, even in that day and age, he realized, I can't win the whole city. And so he said, when people would come in and they get the Holy Ghost, say, you need to go back to your neighborhood and you need to reach your neighborhood. And my family came into the church, into truth, in all of those little neighborhoods. Back then, they didn't call them daughter works. <laughs> they didn't call them things. He, he, had, a, he had a motto, and, and, and uh, Bishop Morris Golder told this. He, he came up under Bishop G.T. Haywood. And he said, if you wanted to preach, he said, Bishop Haywood wanted to see a row full of your converts before he would give you an opportunity to preach. Can you imagine that, Brother Bollinger? <laughs> Pastor, I want to preach, okay? You go out, and when you fill up a whole row in the church, then I'll let you preach. Maybe then you're worth something. If your testimony can work that way, then I'll let you preach. And he would send people out to preach there. Amen. I'm going to tell you. There's nobody living under a curse. We are all under a curse. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so I thank God for the Holy Ghost that saves us. Amen. So this is a doctrine. I would say it's a doctrine of devils. Because the moment that people start thinking this, they start thinking that anyone of any color, any nation, any race is less than, well, then you're not compelled to go for them. And that is anti-Christ. For God so loved the world. Amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. So we've got to believe every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every kindred. Amen. So again, let me go back and say this. Just because... Uh, there is fit. Now, a lot of people, some people use this little detail of history to reject Christianity. 
and they reject the Bible. Aha! People use the Bible to justify slavery. Yes, they misuse the Bible, but that doesn't invalidate the Word of God. Because also the people that were writing strong, taking strong the charge against slavery were also preachers who had the same Bible, who were standing for uh, uh, what God's Word says, what God's words declare. You cannot study Genesis chapters 1 through 11 and come out of there with any form of racism at all. If you are, then you're not studying Genesis 1 through 11. If you study Genesis 1 through 11 and know anything, you know, God help me. I need help. I need a Savior. Not some kind of, you know, prejudice, racism. Racism comes from an evolutionary kind of concept. And it's been driven most and propagated most in the world. Yes, Christians at times misuse Scripture to justify it, but what has driven it the most is stuff and things that are outside of the parameters of God's teachings. Is this all right tonight? Okay. So, now I'll close with this. So, Noah curses his grandson. Because if he cursed his son, it would reflect back upon him. Because the father bears responsibility for the child. Right? You with me? Okay, so when I discovered this, and I got this figured out in my mind, and I was like, okay, check the box. Okay, Noah was really cursing him. He was really laying judgment on him. All of a sudden, I have a new problem. Does anybody know what the new problem is? Huh? Anybody know what the new problem is? <laughs> if the son's cursed, it reflects on the father. What's the new problem? Well, I'm not just calling myself out. We have a problem because Jesus Christ was cursed. Right? We have a problem. Why? Go with me. I'm not making this up, folks. Go to Galatians. Okay, let's go to Galatians. Let's go to Galatians chapter number number 3. Thank you. And verse 13. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Put it on the screen as soon as you can. Okay? Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. What does it say? Being made a curse for us, for it is written, and now he's invoking the Old Testament law, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Christ was cursed. And they had a problem with that because they wrote, what did Herod write? <laughs> Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. And they put that up there. No, you can't put that up there because this man is cursed. Our law tells us that he is cursed. Jesus Christ became a curse for you and me. Okay? We understand that. What was put upon his head when he, when he was crucified? A crown of thorns. And by the way, when you get those thorns, those thorns over there are not the little prickly thorns that come off a rose. Those are long 
thorns. Those thorns could pierce through your hand. Those things are massive. And that crown of thorns was shoved onto his head. It was not setting there. You could not take it off. It was fixed, shoved onto his head. Those crown of thorns. Well, go to Genesis. What did God curse in the garden? He cursed the ground, and he said, out of the ground is now going to come thorns. Jesus hung on the tree cursed by the law, and he had the curse of the ground shoved on his head. I mean, it's curse upon curse. He was touched in all points, tempted in all points, like as we are touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He became sin. He took on sin for himself. He took it so you and I didn't have to. We thank God for that. But what does that mean? Because if the Son is cursed, it's a reflection, right, on the Father. So what's going on here? Well, we got to figure this out. we got to figure this out because if this is true, what, what, what implication does this make here? This reflects back to the Father. Now, God is our Father, our Heavenly Father, and we call Jesus Christ. He said it Himself. He is the Son of God. There's not two gods. It's one entity. It's God, the unknowable, unseeable, God that fills all in all, manifests Himself. He's God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. God came down. He came down to take your and I place. Amen? Amen? So we know that Jesus Christ is not another God. He's not a demigod. He's not Jehovah Junior. He's not another person. He is God. Paul said, the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth in him bodily. He represents the totality of God. There's nothing about God that is missing. Now, when God came down manifest on the flesh and he was walking around, he did not cease to be the God that, that kept the sun and the moon and the earth in rotation and orbit and all the planets and the galaxies and the universe. He was still God that was controlling all the winds and the waves and, and, and everything that happened in this earth. But Jesus Christ was fully God. The fullness of God manifest and expressed, but he was the Son of God. He was the Son. He was the offspring, if you will. Another word that we, we use, and I, I don't know this this helps, but Jesus Christ was the brainchild of God. He was the Logos of God. God says, I have an idea. I'm going to create, and when I create, I'm going to reveal myself to that creation. And, 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 and so in that, that revelation, I am going to come as... The Logos, uh, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You follow me? We understand that, okay? But Jesus Christ comes, and when He comes, He's cursed. God manifests, is cursed for you and me, and that reflects back to God. What does this mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what it means. In the Old Testament, there is the written name of God. And people have argued over this for a long time. Do you have that slide? Can you put up that slide of the written name of God? I sent a slide. Is Monica back there? You got it? There it is. Okay. The written name of God. In Hebrew, and I don't know Hebrew, okay? I know the letters. I know enough to get me in trouble. So I don't know this. I validated this with our rabbi friend. So, and other people could probably... 
corroborate this. You, you know biblical Hebrew. You can understand this. You read from, a little bit. You read from right to left. It's different. From right to left, it goes, it goes backwards. And so you have a, uh, uh, the, first, the first letter is the yud, the he, the vav, and the he. Okay, that's the four letters. And this is called the Tetragrammaton. When you're reading your Bible, the Tetragrammaton, the name of God is translated as Lord. Lord. And so, uh, uh, but, but the actual name of God we transliterate. Some people say Yahweh. Some people say Jehovah. But there, in the ancient Hebrew, there was no vowels. And so it was an oral language. And they would write those consonants. And, and, and so we sort of lost the pronunciation. We're not really exactly sure how it is, but the best that they would most would say now is yud hey vav hey yud hey vav hey somehow like that and that's the four letters it transliterates in our english language and this is bad but as y h w y and sometimes people fill that in and that's where you get the yahweh how they come up with that or yud hey vav hey probably is a little closer to the yehovah because the, 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 the hova, somewhere in there kind of thing. So anyway, so they're trying to figure that out. But, but there, is, <coughs> there is significance in this word. Not only is it the name of God, which has a lot of meaning here, but if you take the, the, the yud hey vav hey, and this is, this is what they told me, uh, uh, because I came up with this problem. And, th- and, and so this is, I, I didn't discover this on my own. This is what they told me, okay? Uh, I said, okay, so now that we know that the curse on the son reflects back to the father, this poses a problem. And I knew where this was going, uh, but they said, okay, if you take the name of God, the actual name of God, when they say yud hey vav hey, or however that's pronounced, it's a mysterious pronouncing. If you actually take the yud, the first, the, 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 the off of, of, of the word, it, it, it's hey, vav, hey. Those are three letters. And those three letters make up a word all by themselves. And that word sounds like hova, which is a noun. And what it means is obligation. 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 There's an obligation. It's a noun. But when you add the yud to the hova, it changes the noun to a verb. And what it literally means is the one who is obligated. The one who is obligated. Now, why is this significance? I don't have, a t- I don't have time tonight to go into this, but this is why it's so powerful. This is why I believe also that Noah knew this and why he cursed his grandson to get to his son instead of reflecting back to him, because whenever there is a curse, it does reflect back to the Father. When Jesus Christ hung on that cross, and he was cursed, the Bible says that he was justified. Justified. Let me ask you a question. How is there any justice in an innocent man going to a cross to pay a price for a crime he never committed unless there was a father that was stepping up who said, you know what? I will take responsibility for all the sin in the world. I will take responsibility for all the chaos in the world. 
I will take responsibility for all the sickness and all the disease in the world. When Jesus Christ was crucified, it says it pleased God. Not because God is some sadistic kind of person that, that loves to invoke torture upon an innocent. No, because God knew, ultimately, I created this thing. Ultimately, I started this thing. I know I gave them free will. And I know rebel they rebelled on their own. But I was the one that spoke it into existence. I was the one that made it possible. And so his name literally means the one who is obligated. I'm going to tell you, we have a choice of which side of eternity we're going to stand on. We can stand upon the side of salvation or we can stand upon the side of rebellion. But I do tell you this, that God will see this thing through until there is no more pain and there is no more tears and there is no more suffering. The sickness that you walk with and the sickness that you carry with. I'm telling you there's coming a day where death will be swallowed up in victory. Every pain that you've ever felt, God feels an obligation to take care of it. Every sin, every circumstance, every sickness that we feel in our body tonight, God says, I feel an obligation. And when he comes back, he's coming back victorious. He's coming back victorious. What does this mean? What does this mean? You've had cancer. Anybody ever had a sickness? Come on, anybody ever had a sickness in your body? Sister Rachel Dunlap is laying in a room trying to recover from a sickness that has come back a second time. They thought they had it. There's cancer eating her body. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to work. We've got things going on. Children that are born deformed with issues and problems and parents that have to wrestle with God. Why? What did I do? People that are born into poverty, slavery that takes place, molestation, horrible things that are happening through the world. You think God doesn't see? You think God doesn't know? No, I would like to declare to you here the one who is obligated that there is coming a day where he's going to take every sin and he's going to trample it under his feet. But he's also, the Bible says, got a tree of life. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And God's going to wipe away every sin. He's going to wipe away every tear. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be deformities in the sense that we're going to be debilitated. No, we're going to be able to see him as he is. We're going to know him as he is. I don't know what that means to those that are blind, except to tell you, amen, that God is obligated to make every wrong right. And so right now, while you are suffering, while you are dealing with issues, don't fall for the lie, amen, that God doesn't know where you're at and God doesn't know what's going on. 
He never promised, amen, that in this life, on this earth, that everything would be settled. But he said, if you will just wait, someday I am coming back. He's got a flaming sword that comes from his mouth. He's got a crown, amen, that says the king of all the nations. He's got a robe of white. He's got justice in one hand, amen. He's got healing in the other. And he's going to take care of it all. Oh, I don't know about you, but that gives me hope tonight. Can you stand toward heaven today? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, he didn't just die on a cross for your sins. He died on a cross for your sickness. He died on a cross for your suffering. He died on a cross, amen, for every pain that you had. The curse that is upon him reflected upon God because God said, I'll pay the price. This is what would compel him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does that mean? The God of all time and space says, I'm going to make myself flesh and come down and dwell. The mystery of the incarnation, the most magnificent thing that's ever walked on the face of this earth. And he said, I will surrender this magnificent manifestation to a cross that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here we get the crutch of it. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The one who is obligated. And the thieves hung on the cross and they were cursing him. Why don't you just curse God and die? The Bible says that they railed against him, but somewhere along that place, one of those thieves looked at him and said, no, you didn't deserve this. He found salvation. He got on the right side when he realized Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't just throw that out there willy-nilly. He did not just give that out. There was a conversion on the cross because one gospel account tells us that two were crucified and railed against him and mocked him. But then the other account tells us that one said, Lord, Lord, he put him up as Lord. Lord, the one who is obligated. And while he was yet on the cross, Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. What if we could just lift our hands and just love the Lord for a moment today? God, I thank you for not cursing us with what we deserve. And I thank you for loving us. I thank you, God, for loving me. Come on, are you thankful? Come on, somebody just praise him through your pain a little bit. Come on, lift your suffering up to him tonight in worship and say, God, I, I know you got this. I know it's hard right now, but God, I give it to you because you paid the price for everything that I'm enduring, everything I go through. And you're obligated to see it through for me. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah.
Hallelujah, Lord. I thank you, Jesus. Oh, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. Come on. Come on, Mom and Dad. Come on. God sees the pain. He sees the suffering. He sees the hurt. Come on to that spouse that's living for God all alone. God sees. God knows. It's an old song says, oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He paid a price. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. God, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I pray, God, that we would leave here tonight in the comfort and the joy of knowing that you're going to settle all the scores and all the wrongs. But God, that you see every ounce of suffering that we live with. That you're on our side and God, you are obligated. You are obligated by your own word. You are bound by your own word to be faithful in your salvation and in your mercy and in your grace. Thank you for being faithful when we're not faithful. Thank you for being constant when we're unwavering. We give you glory and honor and praise. Let the church say amen. Amen. Can you clap your hands unto the Lord tonight? Hallelujah, 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 amen. I want you to think on it. Take some time in prayer this week. Celebrate with the Lord. Thank God for paying the price for you. The justice of Calvary. It's something maybe I'll teach later on. There's a whole study on it. My good friend, dear friend, Brother Clifford Readout has taught on the justice of Calvary. Why was God pleased when Christ died? Why was he justified? If it's not justice, because God says, no, I will take responsibility for everything. There's not one thing that happens in your world that God doesn't take responsibility for. That means there's not one hair that you lose. Anybody losing hair after COVID? Amen. It's not one hair that you lose that God says, okay, I'll, I'll pay the price for that. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord. Do you love the Word of God? Thank you for being so good. Let me preach way too long. I couldn't hear you, babe. I know you were coughing at home, telling me to stop, but I couldn't hear. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.